0: We are working this morning from Matthew chapter 16, a passage that we are going to be. Uh, working our way through uh, a little slower. If you've noticed, there are some uh, passages of Scripture, narrative passages, that we kind of covered a lot of ground uh, all at once, and sometimes we'll tap the brakes and slow down. It really all depends on uh, what the Lord has for us. Some verses, while all verses are beneficial and profitable for us, some verses seem to contain more truth buried within, and we would do well to slow down at times and look at what the Lord has to say to us. By way of introduction, let me just say, the world has seen many kingdoms come and go. Many empires, many nations, many rulers, and even just in the West alone, over the last 2,000 years, we have seen the dominance and subsequent fall of the Roman Empire, probably the largest and grandest and most dominant empire in human history. We've seen the oppressive thousand year shadow cast in the Dark Ages. We've seen the Protestant Reformation in Europe, the English Civil War, followed by the Great Ejection, the American Revolution, the War of 1812, World War I, the rise of the National Socialist Party in Germany, closely followed by World War II. We've seen the Cold War. We've seen severe unrest in the Middle East and all of its multiple regime changes, which has affected the West. And even today, the balance of power in America seems to totter and hang in the balance any time we look at the news. In short, there has always been turmoil on the world stage as every earthly body experiences new birth, rise, zenith, fall, and destruction. It is the natural course of every body and institution on the planet. Yet through all of this, One body, one institution, one people have persevered, and it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. At times, she is dominant and visible. Other times, she is persecuted and underground. There are seasons when we are tolerated, and there are other seasons, most seasons, when we are absolutely hated, and yet we persevere. World leaders such as Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin, even just in the 20th century alone, have vowed to rid the world of the church's influence, but they went to their graves. And the church flourishes. Why? Why? Frankly, there's no logical, earthly reason why the church should have survived the persecution of the first three centuries under the Romans. That should have done it. And furthermore, there's no earthly reason why the church even survived the Dark Ages. Even philosophically, there's no earthly reason why the church should have survived the Enlightenment of the 18th century, modernism of the 19th century, and postmodernism of the late 20th century, and yet the opposition withers and fades and the church remains. Why? Why does the church remain? Well, because Jesus Christ made a promise. Turn with me to Matthew 16 in your Bible. Matthew 16. We're going to look at this promise, this remarkable, remarkable passage of Scripture, which I said, I believe, last week, this is one of the the pillars, the high watermarks of certainly Matthew's Gospel, if not the entire New Testament. Jesus and the disciples have made their way, in this context here, out of Israel. They've traveled into Gentile territory, into Caesarea Philippi, And while there, Jesus takes an opportunity to inquire about how people are uh, understanding his identity. He sort of does this survey among the disciples, and we looked at this last week, but let's just recap very briefly. Matthew 16, 13 says that when now Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So frankly, this is of a, a, a little consequence, really. The survey of popular opinion has nothing to do with the identity of Jesus. It's not like whoever wins out the most uh, guesses for his, his identity, that's the one who takes the winner. Uh, it has nothing to do with his identity. He's just sort of polling them to say, well, what are people saying, and what are you thinking about? And then he presses on a little bit further in verse 15. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon son of John, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And we saw last week, this is what is known as the great confession. And we understand that as Jesus is talking to all the disciples, about what they believed, Peter is the one who answers on their behalf. Remember, we looked at last time when he says, who do you say that I am? The you is a uh, plural, and it's supposed to be you all. What are you all saying that about, about me? And Peter is the one who answers for the group. And truthfully, not just answering for the whole group, but Peter is answering on behalf of all believers who've ever lived. This is the great confession. Every Christian believer, Every Christian believer must affirm that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior sent from God, and more than this, must confirm and affirm that Jesus Christ is God himself. You cannot have Jesus as merely a human Savior or a martyr or a teacher or a prophet and yet not have Jesus as God. Jesus is the living God. And in understanding that affirmation, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we agree with the Scriptures about the Lord. And the Scriptures bear witness that Jesus was in the beginning with the Father. He is timeless in eternity. We read that from John chapter 1. We affirm that He came into the world born to the Virgin Mary. That He lived a perfect, sinless life. That He gave up that sinless life, that perfect life, on the cross as a ransom to purchase sinners, you and me, From death to satisfy the wrath of God that was meant for us, to earn forgiveness and pardon for our sins, and to reconcile us to the Father. We also affirm that Jesus was buried in the ground and rose the third day, that he ascended back to the Father, and that's where he sits at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the day when we affirm again that he will come to this earth in a second advent, a second time, to judge the living and the dead, and therefore forever establish his kingdom. All believers possess this saving confession embodied in Peter's one confession. But all these things are true of what we believe as Christians. Now we all have various understandings and various levels of maturity and and understanding of the scriptures and doctrine and we're all growing, we're all in process of developing and learning as believers. Yet our confession is that Jesus is our Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And it's based on that saving confession of faith. That is at the heart of what Jesus promises to build next. Look at verse 18. He's continuing here, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, this verse has been the subject of strenuous debate over the years. Strenuous debate. And I want to walk through this really phrase by phrase. I want to understand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. In the weeks to come, we're going to unpack this doctrine of the church, first by understanding what the church is, and then we can unpack what we're supposed to be and do. But let's back up a little bit here. On the heels of telling Simon Bar Jonah, Simon, son of John, that he is blessed. He follows up that blessing with this, I also say to you that you are Peter. This word also is important. Grammar matters in the Scriptures. Also is important. Well, why? Well, verse 17, Jesus tells Simon Peter, That the Father has revealed divine truth to him. Remember he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this confession, this reality, this truth to you, but my Father who's in heaven. So he just got done telling Peter that my Father in heaven has revealed something to you. And then he says, I am also going to reveal to you divine truth. This also is important because it places Jesus and the Father himself on equal footing as revealers of truth. It's not just my Father in heaven who's going to reveal this to you. I'm going to reveal something to you as well. You see the, the consubstantiality, the, the equality, the, the, uh, the sameness of the Father and the Son in this moment here. And later we're going to read in John sixteen thirteen. if you were to go chronologically here, that the Spirit is going to, to guide the disciples into all truth. So the Spirit himself is also, according to John 16, 13, a revealer of truth. And so trinitarianly, that's that's the way it is. Divine revelation is a trinitarian exercise. So what is the Son about to reveal to Peter and to the disciples? He's going to reveal the creation of the church. And so before he gets to that, he declares, I also say to you that you are Peter. Now this is interesting. This is not the first time we've seen this name, and it won't be the last. Before this point, for the last two years, for two years in the course of this narrative in Matthew's gospel, in the course of, we're two years into this ministry here, for two years, he's been calling, Jesus has been calling Simon Barjona Cephas in Aramaic. Aramaic is Cephas. Or in the Greek, it's Petros, where we get our word Peter. So for two years, he's been calling him Cephas, or Peter, we know this begins all the way back in John chapter 1 verse 42. Remember this, Simon brother his brother Andrew before he has a chance to meet the Lord, Andrew finds his brother Simon Peter and brings him to Jesus and he tells him, "We found the Messiah." This is 2 years ago. "We found the Messiah." He brings him to Jesus and verse 42 says when Jesus looked at him, he said, "You are Simon the son of John." you shall be called Cephas, and then John translates Peter. Jesus says this to him two years before. Now, what does Cephas or Peter mean? It means rock. It means rock. So imagine with me Simon's bewilderment here. I've just met this man. He knows my birth name. He knows my surname. He knows my family, and now he's already given me a nickname, Now, and notice what this nickname is. He doesn't call me Judah, wise. He doesn't call me Gabriel, strong in God. He doesn't even call me Nathan, gift of God. No, what does he call me? He calls me Rock. How am I supposed to take that? What am I supposed to do with that? And so for two years, Jesus is calling Simon Peter Rock. He doesn't explain it until today. And now, in the same exact way, he addresses him in the same way he first addressed him back in John 1. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of John. And Peter's getting ready, okay? He says, blessed are you, and then he says, you are Peter. Whereas before, two years before, he said, you will one day be Peter. You shall be Peter. But today you are Peter. Of course, We should be familiar with the concept of God changing people's names. We see that several times in the Bible. In fact, when God changes a name in the Bible, it is always to signify either a new status or a new ministry or both. We see this from Abram in Genesis 17.5. The Lord said, "...no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations." See, Abram means father of some, but Abraham means father of a multitude. Or even in Genesis 32, 28, Jacob is wrestling with God. And at that point, the Lord declares to him, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Israel, because you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And so this concept is not new to us. And in here, Matthew 16, the Lord is giving Simon... A new identity and a new ministry, a new mission. And it all has to do with the church. And so he tells him, you are Peter. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, this phrase has come under intense scrutiny over the last 500 years, particularly in light of the Protestant Reformation. And those of you who know your Reformation history know that this is a a gargantuan issue. And over the course, I would even add, of 1,500 years, the Roman Catholic Church has been progressively developing the doctrine of apostolic succession. And I say progressively because this doctrine that they have been working through has changed dramatically over the years. If I could summarize it briefly, I want to use original documents here because I want you to hear this and the actual argument as it is. It goes like this. I'm going to quote from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. In their catechism, paragraph 442, citing Matthew sixteen sixteen, we read this, quote: From the beginning, this acknowledgment of Christ's divine sonship will be the center of the apostolic faith first professed by Peter as, as the church's foundation. So, in the catechism, they rightly identify that Peter's confession is significant to the establishment of the church. It's significant, okay? Paragraph 553. Citing Matthew 16, 19, which is the keys of the kingdom, which we'll talk about shortly the next couple weeks here, they write this, Jesus entrusted a specific authority to Peter, the power of the keys to bind and loose, they continue, which connotes the authority to absolve sins, to pronounce doctrinal judgments, and to make disciplinary actions in the church, end quote. It continues, Jesus entrusted this authority to the church through the ministry of the apostles, and particularly through the ministry of Peter, the only one to whom he specifically entrusted the keys of the kingdom. And so now, see this is how, this is developing now. The the logical conclusion is building here. Now you have total church authority being handed over to Peter alone. This is important. As I continue to read paragraph 881, 882, quote, The Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter the rock of his church, and gave him the keys of his church, and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. The office of binding and loosing, which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of Apostles, united at its head. This pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. Now you have the institution of the Pope. Paragraph 882. The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and Peter's successor, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as the vicar of Christ, these phrases, by the way, are important, the vicar of Christ, as a pastor of the entire church, has full supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered, end quote. That is the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. This is how they've established the office of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, Peter's successor, as they say. And even just to get some definitions here, the word Pope comes from the Latin word Papa, which means father. That's where this word comes from. He's also called the vicar of Christ. Vicar, in this, constitu- this, uh, in this context, it means Christ's substitute or his representative on earth. That's the vicar of Christ. He's also called the supreme pontiff, which comes from the Latin phrase pontifex Maximix, maximus, which means the bridge or supreme bridge, referring to his in- intermediary work. So we have to ask the question, is this this what Jesus is doing in this passage? Is he establishing the apostolic succession of the papacy in this text? And I would argue with you, not at all. Not at all. In fact, as I mentioned, this dogma has developed progressively over 1,500 years. Progressively. So much so that it wasn't until 1870... 1870, when the first Vatican Council declared that the Pope was to be infallible when he's speaking ex cathedra, meaning when he's speaking ex cathedra from the chair, from the seat of, of authority and power. Not when he's talking to you about you know, menial things, what he had for lunch today or anything like that, but when he's seating, seated at this place of authority and teaching ex cathedra, he is infallible in speaking the revealed words of God to people. 1870s when they solidified this. But let me just tell you, the church hasn't always believed this. In fact, a large majority, a large majority of the early church fathers believe that Jesus is not building his church on Peter, but on Peter's confession, which is common to all believers. Let me just give you just a, a small sampling here. Writing in the late 4th century, John Chrysostom notes that the rock is the faith of his confession, the rock? Is the faith of his confession? Whereas an early fifth-century theologian, Theodore of Mopsuestia, he writes this: It was from this confession, which was going to become the common property of all believers, that Christ bestowed on him the name, the rock. Chrysostom says it's the confession. Theodore says it's the confession. The church history, all early church fathers, most of them believe it's his confession. The reformers believed it was his confession. Furthermore, Jesus, if he was planning to build anything on Peter himself, he very easily could have said, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. There's actually some wordplay here. There's some imagery that he's using here. But he's not saying that he's going to build it squarely on Peter as a person. And so what about this? Notion of the Pope. Well, there is not one shred of biblical support for this idea of this supreme pontiff, this pope, this vicar of Christ on earth. In fact, there's numerous scriptures against it. On the notion of the vicar of Christ, Jesus says in John 14:16 that he plans to send someone else in his place to be, in essence, the vicar of Christ, and that person is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Vicar of Christ, the Comforter, the Counselor, the Exhorter, the Advocate, the Encourager. So the one who stands in Jesus' place in ministry here on earth amongst the saints is the Spirit of God, not the Pope. What about Vicar? What about this concept of Vicar being the Holy Spirit? And we even go further than that. What about the, the Pontifex Maximus, the, the Pontiff, the Great Bridge, our earthly mediator, well, First Timothy 2.5 says there is one mediator between God and man. It's not the Pope. It is the man Christ Jesus, the Scripture says, who is our advocate with the Father, First John 2.1. The bridge between heaven and earth, John one fifty one. It's not the Pope. What about the title itself, Pope, Papa, Father? Well, in fact, he's commonly called the Holy Father. Whenever you see news articles about him or anybody refers to the Pope, they call him the Holy Father. Capital T, capital H, capital F. But Jesus says in Matthew 23 9, call no man Father. No man Father, for one is your Father, he who is in heaven. We are to call no one Father in the proper sense. No man is our Father except God alone. And so, beloved, the mere existence of the office of the papacy, the pope, is a Trinitarian blasphemy. It is. So where does Peter fit in? Where does Peter fit in? Well, on building the church, Christ has already said he has to start somewhere. There has to be a beginning, right? Someone has to be the first believers, and we see that the disciples here, very clearly in the passage, the disciples here are these first believers, and Peter is acting as their spokesman in the moment. And it's not that the apostles are nothing. We can't so totally disregard them and say, well, they're just like anybody else, even though Certainly, in terms of value, you and I, yes, of course they 're like anybody else, but there is something special about who they are in terms of their office, that they 're important. ephesians two20 notes that the church, which is built which is called god 's household, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. yes, that 's true, but then Peter continues, or excuse me, Paul continues, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Christ himself is the cornerstone, so if there is to be a foundational stone. On which the church is built it is christ jesus himself in fact in fact habakkuk 112 calls the lord the rock so does psalm 1914 psalm 28 1 psalm 31 3 psalm 42 9 that's just the psalms over and over again the lord is our rock the lord is our fortress and our strength and our foundation our justification is based on the righteousness of Christ. He is our foundation. He is our rock. He is our strength. It's not Peter. In fact, Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter 2:5 that we are merely living stones. Living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. And what is the foundation, the cornerstone? Well, Peter says it's Christ. It's Christ. And how does the church get established? How is he building it? It is by faith in Jesus. It is by common confession. It is by trusting in him. Every single time a person is regenerated and confesses Jesus, another living stone is added to God's household. Again, beginning with the very first saving confession of faith in Christ, every believer, every believer is added and built up into God's Spiritual household. Well, who does this work of building? Who does this work? Well, Jesus does. He declares, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And each one of these five words is significant. I will build my church. You could really, frankly, do a sermon on each one of these words. But for our time today, I want to just look at these five here. I Jesus is referring to Himself. Jesus is the sole owner of the church, the sole builder, the purifier. He's the key actor in the verse, as we're going to see. The church of Christ does not belong to the elders, to the pastors. doesn't belong to the membership. It's not the building. It's not the the status of 501c3. Nothing like that. The church of Jesus Christ belongs to to Jesus Christ. We all belong to Him. We are His property, His possession, which He loves dearly. And so He says, I, I. Then He says, will, will. This is the will of Christ to establish and to build His church. And if it's based on the perfect will of Christ, then no other will, no contrary will or force can thwart that plan. Again, Earthly dictators try to annihilate the church off the face of the earth. But ever notice what happens when they do that? When they determine to persecute the church and to wipe it out, you know what happens? It grows. It grows. Every single totalitarian regime, communist regime, socialist regime, that tries to undermine and uproot the ministry, the witness, the existence of the body of Christ, You know what always happens? Revival. Not visibly. Because right now, I just think about the church in China or the church in Iraq in the Middle East and other countries like that. There is revival and resurgence. Not visibly the way you see on TV. We're not talking about slick suits and slick back hair and private jets. Nothing like that. You have believers huddled together in a bunker somewhere with a small, tattered Bible that they share amongst themselves, one leader who ministers the word and the, the ordinances is to them, they pray, they seek the Lord, they grow, they evangelize, and Christ is exalted and honored and glorified. That's what happens in the life of the persecuted church. And so you know what? world leaders, do your best. Right now, the, the armies of hell are marching on the church in America, are they not? They're marching on the morality of Scripture. And of God, the righteousness of God, the witness of the church, what we can say, what we can do, where we can go, what we can say, in terms of the counseling session, in the public square. According to the Johnson Amendment, I'm not allowed to talk about anything having to do with faith and politics. Now, I don't get into politics much at all, but frankly, they're trying to muzzle the witness of the church. All I have to say to that is good luck. Good luck. Good luck to the world that tries to thwart the plans of Christ. I will build my church. And so I say, armies of Satan, good luck against the will of Christ. He says, I will build, signifies an action of Christ that he's taking. The Greek word here is oikodomeo. It means it pertains to house building. House building. We often see this in terms of growth. Now, The myth is that we build the church. I've even seen workshops you can attend. Grow your church to X amount of people, or X amount of baptisms, or X amount of campuses. One curriculum I saw was how to break the 200 barrier. Frankly, I don't care about how to break the 200 barrier. Frankly, it seems as though the Word of God is doing a good job at that. But all these methods and tactics for how we're going to build something here on earth that's ours, it's, it's baloney, it's garbage. Because it's our efforts that are doing it. That is not how God decides to build his church. And certainly, yes, we labor with Christ. We work with him. We have to work with him, of course. 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God, God that caused all the growth. God is the one who breaks out barriers. God is the one who grows and sanctifies and purifies. Now, how does that happen exactly? What is spiritual growth? Well, certainly, for starters, it's new faith. When a new person comes to saving faith in Christ, every new believer who is redeemed and saved is added to the church by Christ. We read that in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. We don't read the apostles were putting on seminars for how to get this thing to work. No, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord, the Lord builds His church, brings new believers and adds them to the assembly. The Lord does this work. He builds His church through new believers. But guess what? He also builds through sanctification. He grows us spiritually. He purifies us. He makes us stronger. And beloved, let me tell you, that always is accompanied with trials and difficulty and pain. It always is. Very few believers grow when they're smiling. Now, spiritual growth will make you smile. It brings joy. I want to grow. I hope you do too. That's the goal of the Christian life is to grow in godliness to bring glory to Him. But as it happens, it can be really painful. But praise be to God, He does not break the bruised reed or blow out the smoking flax. He will preserve and guard us and protect us. He purifies His church. He makes us stronger. Titus 2, 11 through 14 He gives us grace and teaches us how to live a godly life, to deny ungodliness, to walk righteously until we become zealous for good deeds. He grows us. And it's our job to then submit ourselves to the work of God because we want to grow. Every Christian believer should want to grow. And if you don't want to grow, check your heart. Check your heart. Do I care about growing beyond my sinful flesh? You ought to. But by His grace, He builds up Ephesians 4. He builds us up to attain unity and knowledge of the faith and spiritual maturity. God will grow you, either with you or against you, but He will grow you. He will break you down to build you up because He is the sovereign Lord. And Jesus Christ has promised, I will build my church. My, my this is a lovely word. My church. The church belongs to Him. We are His prized possession. He calls us this prize, a people for His own possession. Titus 2, 1 Peter 2. We are given to Him by the Father as a gift. We are His property. We are His beloved. As the Scripture says, we are His bride of Christ you are his if you ever feel lost or alone or spiritually homeless or even say you have a point you reach this point in your life where people have turned against you maybe you feel like you're at odds remember this promise you belong to the Lord he looks at you and says mine mine what a treasured truth this is I will build my church. Ecclesia in the Greek, assembly, congregation, the whole collection of universal believers gathered together in unity unto faith and service and worship of Jesus Christ. Didn't we read that this morning in Hebrews 10? That we are gathered together, we are not to forsake the assembly. It's not talking about church attendance, it's talking about the practice of not engaging with the body of fellowship of the believers. We are to gather together and and sharpen each other and stir each other on to love and good deeds. Sometimes that stirring is joyful and, and peaceable. Sometimes that stirring is iron sharpening iron. But we are to stir each other up to love and good deeds. And if we are His, then He will preserve us and He will protect us. He does, beloved. He protects His flock. Again, it doesn't matter what's happening in the world. It does not matter. God will preserve you and protect you. To what end? To what end? He says this. This is wonderful. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, this phrase has been understood many ways. Many ways. Some translations actually take the exegetical leap and say the gates of Hades means the gates of hell. I've seen some translations that even render it that way in the bible which presents really the the gates of hell that's that's a representative of the the strength of the kingdom of satan it means that all the all the forces and powers and 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 strength and darts and and uh devices of hell are turned against the church and christ is protecting us from all that in this way we see that not even the powers of hell can overtake the church however some have noted that this is a This is referring to fortress gates well what are gates used for well gates are used for defense are they not and so this wouldn't necessarily be an advancing kind of a thing and so not only will the powers of hell not be able to destroy the church but even the defensive gates of hell will not stop the advance of the church so not only will they not attack and that's ephesians 6 by the way the fiery darts of the evil one that try to penetrate the armor and, and get to your heart and soul and destroy you. Not even that's going to work against the church, but not even the advances of the church are going to be stopped by the gates of hell. Did we read, that about, we read about that in uh, Matthew eleven twelve. 12? The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent people take it by force. There's a certain holy violence of, of progressing. It's not earthly violence. We're not hurting anybody physically. No, it's a force of will that advances in the faith. Where you fight your own sin and your own nature, I will not be mastered by my sin. I will advance. I will take heaven by storm. I will seek the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's holy violence, against not against other people. People are not our enemy. They're the mission. They're the objects of mercy. And the objects of our love toward the gospel and sharing that with them. No, the vigorous warfare of the Spirit is against our own nature, against the powers of hell and unto Christ to glorify Him. And as the church marches on, sinners are snatched from the flames of hell. And there's not a single thing that can be done to stop it. When God saves a sinner and plucks them from hell, there's nothing that can be done. Satan is totally and utterly powerless. And once the Lord has them, according to John 10, nobody can pry the fingers open and steal them. The Lord has us as believers. Of course, there's another interpretation of this passage. Some scholars maintain that the word Hades here is not referring to hell, but yet it is referring to the underworld, to death itself. And there's something to this, because the enemies of Christianity consistently assume that the way to destroy the church is to persecute it. Ultimately, here's what the enemy wants to do, and I'm, don't forgive me for being dramatic here, but he, this is really what it is. Satan himself wants to kill every single Christian believer. And along the way, they want to mutilate us. This is why the imago Dei, the image of God in humanity. This is why the doctrines of demons always attack maleness, femaleness, identity, life itself, those who are disabled, they'll try to attack that and euthanize those who seem to seemingly have no earthly value. That is garbage. That is hogwash from the fires of hell. The imago Dei, the image of God and humanity, is a precious thing. And the enemy will try to destroy the imago Dei and also try to destroy us at our very core, humiliate us, dehumanize us, frustrate us, discourage us. But Tertullian has said, famously, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I'll tell you, you read the history of martyrology, you read Fox's book of Martyrs, and you see over and over again that those who are killed for the faith, not only does the church get stronger, but they glory in being persecuted for Christ. Death does not destroy the church. It actually contributes to its growth. In fact, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15-26, death is our last enemy to be abolished. We see in Revelation seventeen fourteen, John writes that the enemies of Christ in the last days will wage war against the Lamb... And the Lamb will overpower them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Even Revelation predicts, do your worst. Christ will prevail and overpower. And so will the church. Because we are called. Why? Because He called us. We are the chosen. Why? Because He chose us. We are the faithful. Why? Because he has given us faith. And in doing so, he advances his kingdom through his church, and no amount of persecution, opposition, death, anything, will overpower the household of faith that Christ is building for himself. So the question to you all is this. Are you in God's household? Do you belong to Him? Now for those of you who do, and you say yes and amen, praise Him. Praise the Lord for His grace and His kindness toward you, for His loving tenderness toward you, through His sovereign electing grace that He would even save one of us, let alone a multitude of us. But if you're not sure, If you're sitting here thinking, you know, I I don't know if I'm in the household of God. I don't know if I belong to Christ. Then examine yourself and see that every single one of us has sinned, and you included. And your sin is what separates you from God. And more than that, it doesn't just separate you. It it puts you in the crosshairs of His divine judgment. God hates sin. And He will punish every sin to the highest level to preserve His own holiness in His good name. And yet, while we were all enemies of God, He in His love and mercy sent Jesus Christ to this earth, truly and fully God and truly and fully man, two natures in one didn't meet at this precipice of grace. And He comes and He gives His life and dies to pay for us. And redeems us and buys us back from the grave. And plucks us out of hell. And says, mine. He washes us clean. Sanctifies us and cleanses us with his own blood. Forgives our sins and then gives us brand new life. And say, now you have freedom. Now you have life. Now you have eternity with the Father. And how do we receive this amazing gift? By faith. By faith. And in by faith, you say, no, I hate my old life. I hate my sin. I hate all the ways I've transgressed the law of God. I hate everything that's wicked in me. I hate that, and I agree with you, God. I repent. I turn. I say, Lord, I want to live. I trust you, Jesus Christ, alone for my salvation. And by faith, by faith, you are saved and it is by grace that you are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not by our own efforts. It's not by the intercessory prayers of other people. It's not by some kind of workable grace dispensed by another person, the pope or a priest, anything like that. No, you are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. According to the Scriptures, given to us alone as authority and for the glory of God alone. Lord, we thank You for Your loving kindness to us that You have chosen to save even just one because all of us are sinful. Not one of us is righteous. Not one of us is worthy of redemption. And yet, You save countless numbers of people and you are building your church and so lord as you have already promised this to the church to build and to grow your bride we we earnestly seek you even now and lord i would even plead with you as one of the shepherds here lord to not stop with harvest bible church to not stop with the saints here that by Your promise and by Your grace and by Your own sovereign will that You will continue to build this church. That You will add new believers to this assembly. New faith, new life. Those who have a first love, a, 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 an earnest zeal, a knowledge of the saving faith that they have in You. That You would add new believers to this assembly And that we might love them and nourish them and cherish them, Lord. And also that You would take the saints who've been with us and mature them and grow them, Lord. And as painful as that is, as much as it feels like the ground beneath us is falling out, whatever our cause or course, Lord, that You will not stop purifying us by Your Word and sharpening us and breaking down our pride And breaking down our self-reliance. Only to build us back up squarely on You. That You would be the true source of all life and vitality and growth. And nourishment and strength and beauty and grace and love. That we would see You as precious above all. And Lord, don't stop there. That You would bring many saints to glory. And Lord, as we have older saints are going to leave us at some point. We don't know when that day is, but You do. And as those saints are translated from this earthly realm to the next one, Lord, that as a body of believers, we would usher them, fully fed and nourished and loved, well-loved, into the arms of their Savior, even to their final breath. And so, Lord, please, don't stop building this church. Don't stop until you come home. And Lord, don't let this assembly, this church, fall to the declination narrative. Don't let us apostatize. Don't let our children apostatize. Don't let our grandchildren apostatize. Lord, will You build this church to stay solid and grounded in Your Word for hundreds and hundreds of years if You tarry, so that this witness will not fail until you call home all of us. By your promise and by your will, build this church, O oh God. We honor you with everything we have. and We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.